electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Well, happy Monday and welcome to The Exchange, everybody. I am Brian and for Kelly once again. And this may be a holiday week. I'm told it is. But the news never takes a day off. There is a lot to talk about today, including the stunning return of Bob Iger to run Disney. Can he do what Bob Chapek apparently couldn't? Plus, lots of hawkish talk from FedHeads recently. But one top economist says ignore most of the noise. He's going to give you the real deal on the Fed. And China's COVID zero policy, not working. Cases spiking again. Will they ever change a policy that is keeping people nearly locked up and their economy nearly locked down? We're gonna get a live report from Beijing on all that. But before we do, let's get some of these numbers here in a market day on a holiday shortened week. Dom, what are you looking at, my man, besides your 49ers playing tonight in Mexico City? Where it's forecasted that 80-some percent of the fans will be Niners fans as opposed to the Cardinals. Not a shocker there. Uh, I don't know. Anyway, so uh, red, the color of the day for football tonight because both the Cardinals and the Niners have red. But it's also red on the screen today, but just marginally so. Fractional losses so far. The Dow Industrial is down about 61 points, about two-tenths of one percent. To give you an idea, we're down 61 points at the highs of the session. Up, call it 118 points or thereabouts. At the lows of the session, down about 186. There is the trading range so far, so kind of drifting between marginal gains and losses throughout the course of the day. The S&P 500 still below 4,000, 39.45, down 20 handles, half of 1% losses there. One and a quarter percent losses for the Nasdaq Composite, hovering right above the 11,000 mark, down about 137 points. Brian had talked a little bit about some of the slowdown picture. One of the stories that was affecting a lot of markets today was something that happened with regard to China and the slowdown there. That was having a negative effect on oil that was exacerbated by then a Wall Street Journal story saying that OPEC plus its partner countries might look to increase production at some point down the line. That was quickly refuted by officials in Saudi Arabia. Nonetheless, WTI crude is down fractionally. It was down much more today, still down $80, uh, below $80, $79.59. I'm throwing a year-to-date chart up there because at one point today on an intraday level, we were just a stone's throw away from the lowest levels all year of 2022. So keep an eye on those oil markets, on those China headlines. And speaking of, you see what's happening here with some of those big names in China, in technology, like Baidu, JD.com, Alibaba. Those shares down anywhere from 2 to 6.5% right now on some of those China fears about COVID lockdowns and a slowing economy. That's having an effect also on some of the big casino operators with operations in Macau in China. The Las Vegas Sands down 4%, 3% losses for wind. So keep an eye on all things macro and their effects on the micro bry, oil, growth, casinos, China Tech. I'll send things back over to you. Yeah, we're going to talk a lot more about that OPEC and oil story later on in the show, Dom. But appreciate it. Thank you very much. All right. Fed president spoke at least 16 separate times last week. 16. And now we have the first so-called Fed speak of the day today. Steve Leisman has those headlines. We'll just not cut you a break, Steve. No, uh, uh, hard but interesting work here. An interesting uh, speech by San Francisco Fed President Mary Daly, who says the Fed has more work to do 
But she points to a federal a San Francisco Fed paper that shows the level of financial tightening in the market right now is higher than portrayed in the current Fed funds rate. Daly says that research shows that markets are acting like the funds rate is around 6% compared to the 3.75 to 4%, which is the current rate. And then she goes on to say the Fed needs to be mindful of the impacts uh, of these uh, rate hikes and the current real rate or, or rate that's felt by the market as it moves toward this sufficiently restrictive stance. That includes, includes the cumulative tightening uh, so far and the lags and other tightening effects. So let's go through those. She says the Fed rate does not capture the impact of other tools that are out there, including the balance sheet runoff, which is quite substantial at $95 billion a month and forward guidance from the from the Fed, along with rate hikes by other central banks that she says amplify Fed actions that are going on now. The Fed is entering, she says, a more difficult phase of tightening where adjusting too little leaves inflation too high, but adjusting too much could lead to a painful downturn that's not necessarily required. She warns the Fed not to overlook the, the lags that could overstate the need for Fed rate hikes. And those lags, she says, are at least several quarters. Early signs, she says, she sees of labor cooling. And the latest inflation report she says are encouraging. The Fed needs to go far enough to get the job done, but be mindful not to overdo it. So kind of prospectively dovish, I would say, out of the box here, this idea that the market is feeling and acting like a funds rate that is much higher than the actual rate. Brian? You know, we talk about politics and everybody wants to throw everybody into a box, right? Apparently, everybody in America is either on the red team or the blue team. You're not allowed to be in the middle. I'm being sarcastic. I feel like with the Fed heads, we say hawkish and dovish, but it's almost like Republican Democrat. There are plenty of people that are in the middle. And some of these Fed heads, I would imagine these Fed officials, it's not like we can just put their their views into one singular box, is it? No, and that's especially true right now, Brian, because everybody is on board with raising rates. Everybody's on board with uh, um, getting uh, with fighting inflation, making that the primary battle. The interesting question becomes, Brian, these comments now are not really relevant, I think, for today, tomorrow or, or the next meeting. I think they're relevant for next year. It's where a Fed official would say, you know what? We, we need to stop a little earlier than my colleague believes here because I'm more worried about the lags and the cumulative tightening and this idea of a funds rate that's, um, you know, felt at 6% rather than where the current rate is. These are all, as I said, prospective ideas. So, yeah, right now, I think everybody's in the foxhole and everybody's a hawk, so to speak, because of the inflation numbers. But several months from now, I think some of these differences that are out there in their commentary will matter a lot more. All right, Steve, thank you very much. Appreciate that nuanced view. We all just not in one box or the other, right? All right, so anyway, your next guest says that any hopes of a Fed pivot may be a little misplaced because the Fed will likely stay on the brakes longer than the market thinks. But that does not mean stocks cannot do well. Joining us now is Bryant Van Cronkite. He is Senior Portfolio Manager at Allspring Global Markets. I like the view. We pointed out last week that in 1994, the Federal Reserve jacked up rates by 2.5%. In 1995, the Dow rose 33%. Rate hikes and market gains are not always mutually exclusive, are they? Definitely not. I think stocks can work from here, but you want to focus more on secular demand drivers as opposed to cyclical. The Fed has an obligation to stay uh, credible on inflation targeting. If inflation expectations begin to rise again, it'll only exacerbate the issue. So I think they're going to turn their focus less to inflation and more to employment. 
when employment cools, they'll have confidence, I think, that inflation expectations will slow, and then cyclical demand might reassert itself. But for the time being, there's plenty of stocks to own that cyclical demand can carry the day over cyclical. All right, so let's talk about some of the individual names that you brought for you, because I, I like... I like these names. They're mid-cap names. They don't get a lot of attention. And your first company is one I know well. I've actually got friends that work there, and I mean this with love. It may be one of the more boring companies in the world, but that's how they like it. They make baking soda and prophylactics that's church, and toothpaste, I think. Church and Dwight. They don't do TV interviews. They don't really publicize. And that may be one of the reasons you like them. Well, I like it for a lot of reasons, but the biggest reason I like them historically is they put off a lot of cash flow. That cash flow loads their balance sheet, and they use that balance sheet very well to make acquisitions. And those acquisitions then are the next leg of growth for that business. Today, the company's stock price is reflecting challenges in maybe two different products that are more discretionary in nature. Not the products you mentioned that are very common staple products, but the discretionary products that are seeing a little slowdown in demand. The focus on that has moved uh, everybody lower on the stock, but I think there's options for them. They have a $3 billion capacity to spend right now. They'll make more acquisitions. I'd like them to see them to investigate maybe even selling some assets that are more discretionary. They'll ultimately stabilize their free cash flow in the future, only allowing the multiple to rebate higher. So uh, the market's cyclical view on, this, on two products is overwhelming the longer-term view on the rest of the business today. Yeah, and another name, and we threw it up there, but a lot of people were listening on the radio, so they couldn't see it, so we'll have to say the name, and that is Vulcan Materials, and I'm, I'm bringing this one up. Mastech was your other. I'm bringing Vulcan up because we had a guest on last week who also liked Vulcan Materials and literally a company that helps make, make roads. Absolutely. It's, it's a fantastic business and an even better industry, actually. The industry has shown pricing power uh, for the last five decades that's unmatched, and that pricing power remains today, which overwhelms the cost increases they're seeing. But more importantly, the business is a little cyclical, but a lot secular. Right now, they have tremendous demand from infrastructure spending and bills that have already passed. You have onshoring that's taking place uh, in the U.S. for supply chains. The demand drivers here are very strong, and you have the backdrop of great pricing over your cost of console, which is deflating in the future. So I like the setup here. And importantly, again, the company's active with their balance sheet. They're making acquisitions to expand their markets. Um, and they're actually sold, sold some assets recently to bring some more cash back onto the balance sheet to recycle for the future. Brian Van Cronkite with All Spring Global Investments, Church and Dwight, Vulcan Materials, and Mastech. Brian, thank you very much. Have a great day and a good Thanksgiving. Thank All you. Right. You also. Now to the other big story of the day, and that is Disney. Disney shares are higher by 5.5% after the company announced that Bob Iger would return as CEO, effective immediately, shocking everybody replacing Bob Chapek. Now, the stock down 28% since Chapek took over in late 2020. Really have three big questions here. Why did this have to happen now? What is Iger going to do differently? And what is going to happen down the road the next time that Iger retires? And we have just the people to answer them. That is Julia Borston, and that is Alex Sherman. Julia, you are tied into Disney like no other. Did, did this one shock even you? <laughs> you know, it surprised me and then it didn't surprise me. I did go back and check the, the timestamp on when the press release arrived to make sure that it wasn't a, a couple years old because Bob Iger has extended his tenure before. But I think it's really notable that this comes on the heels of a really disappointing earnings report. November 8th, Disney reported earnings that missed on the top and bottom line. And even though they added more streaming subscribers than expected, the magnitude of the loss in the streaming division was much larger than anticipated. 
COVID. And I think there were a lot of concerns about that and also some concerns that the way that JPEC was handling cutbacks, uh, uh, perhaps a hiring freeze, that that wasn't going over well with the staff, this understanding that times are tough, but that he wasn't handling things well. So I think that um, it makes sense, given that there isn't right now a deep bench of people who could have taken that, taken on that role. And I think that's one reason we well, saw it go back to Iger, because there wasn't someone else ready to take on, take on the big CEO job. Alex, apparently there was no bench. Because... <laughs> Because they didn't, they didn't bring up anybody from the outside. They went back to the former guy, who, by the way, was the same guy that said that the old guy, Bob Chapek, was the right guy for the job. Iger endorsed well, Chapek. The, the, the irony here, Brian, is that while Bob Iger is rightly celebrated as being a phenomenal CEO in certain ways that have to do with strategy and acquisitions, his one weakness appears to be succession planning. And that's exactly what Disney has gone back to Bob Iger to do, at least superficially, is to come up with somebody else to take over this company after he uh, moves on, which apparently is going to be in two years, at least that's how long his contract is. Now, Bob Iger's uh, past resume indicates that just because he signs a contract for two years, that doesn't necessarily mean his tenure will be two years. He is 70 years old. Uh, but you'd have to wonder if even this time around, even if superficially we're talking about him coming up with succession planning, if maybe he doesn't decide yeah. to hang, or, hang around for even longer. Well, Julia, what can, listen, Bob Iger obviously has done so much for Disney, so they're kind of going back to the game plan they thought worked, but what's, what's he going to do differently around, around Disney Plus? I mean, losing a billion plus dollars a year, I mean, I, I don't know if Bob Iger could be Gandalf. I'm not sure what kind well, of wizardry he's going to have here. I think one thing I would point out is that Bob Chapek restructured the company to divide up the content creation and the content dis distribution, put those into two different divisions. And many sources at the company have told me that he created a structure where those two divisions were at odds with each other. We're not working together, but we're working against each other. And Bob Iger, I understand, has criticized that, um, that formula in the past and that a lot of the creative folks at Disney have criticized that approach as well. So I think it's very, very possible that Bob Iger well, in short order, restructure um, that restructuring that Bob Chapek did. Um, I don't know if we know exactly what it'll look like. He probably won't bring it back to exactly what it was when he was running the company. But I do yeah. think that we can expect some reevaluation of how you figure out what content goes on which platform and also really careful evaluation of of how much content they should be putting on Disney Plus and how much they should be spending on that content. You know, Alex, I don't know. Maybe I'm just it's Monday. I'm grumpy. I feel like there's more to the. At least you got to work from. We live near each other, so you know the commute I did. Um, at le, at, there's more to this story. It feels like right, I mean, because Iger supported Chapek as CEO. Then the two had a big falling out, apparently over I, I don't know if it's leaked information. In other words, it kind of went to war. Chapek has been criticized for his handling of the Florida uh, "Don't Say Gay" law. Maybe some strained relations with China. Do you think, and I'm going to ask you to editorialize, this was a case of the board saying, Chapek's out, Bob, will you come back? Or do you think this might have been a little more Bob, be Bob Iger being proactive in helping oust his former friend? Well, it depends on what you mean by proactive. I think that Bob Iger has not been a fan of several of the things that you mentioned, uh, in term and Julia, for that matter, restructuring the organization, how he handled Don't Say Gay, how he handled Scarlett Johansson, salary negotiations. There have been a series of things that I believe 
Bob Iger has not agreed with. That said, do I think he was lobbying hard behind the scenes to get this job? No, I don't. But I do think that there has been, and this is just based on reporting from the past 24 hours, uh, there were some senior leadership at Disney that uh, expressed their concerns with Bob Chapek to the board, saying they basically a vote of no confidence in him. Mm. Uh, and I think the board took a look, a hard look at Disney after this most recent earnings, as Julia said. They saw that the streaming losses had ballooned. The, Disney only had a billion dollars of free cash flow over the past 12 months. Uh, it, it's on the hook now to spend at least $9 billion to our parent company, Comcast, to buy a 33% stake in Hulu at the beginning of 2024, at the same time that investors have turned on this narrative yeah. of streaming growth at all costs, which Bob Chapek has basically aligned Disney uh, with over the past 24 months and or so. So maybe the board just said, you know what, we need a new leader here because times have changed again. Yeah, Susan Arnold, the chair of the board, former Carlisle partner, coming in hot. But Bob Chapek, Julie, he's going to be okay. 23 million on the way out the door? I, I'm, I'm not worried about him financially. I think the question is, is does he go on and have another career in Hollywood? You know, a lot of people who have left big executive roles, they go on and have production deals. I don't think we're going to see that from Chapek, whose background is in uh, is in the parks business. Um, but certainly, I, from what I understand, this was a big surprise for him. And he knew that things were tough and he was working on figuring out layoffs and streamlining. But I don't think that two weeks ago he would have expected this. I'm not sure anybody did. Bob Iger just sitting on his boat somewhere, gets a phone call. Next thing you know, he's back in Burbank in the C-suite. Julia Borston, Alex Sherman, great stuff. Appreciate that. Thank you. All right, on deck. The holiday travel season is about to kick off, and your next guest says there are no signs of a slowdown. Phil Lebeau will join us with the CEO of Frontier Air next. Plus, another CEO, this one of Stiefel, will join us with his take on the Fed, rates, and even crypto following the fall of F. TX. Oil, by the way, about to turn positive. We're back right after this. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. All right, welcome back. Are you flying for the holidays? If not, you, you may be the only one who isn't. Travel season's in full swing, and your next guest is betting on demand to stay sky high heading into next year. Phil Lebeau is here with the CEO of Frontier Airlines. Phil, take it away. Thank you, Brian. Barry Biffle joining us from Frontier Airlines. Barry, uh, that was basically the main question everybody has this week. How smooth will the travel experience be? Because this year has not been a good one when it comes to travel holidays. Is it going to be a smooth Thanksgiving for people who are flying? 
I think that it's going to be a busy Thanksgiving. You know, I think everyone's going to be full and uh, everybody needs to make sure that they pack a little bit of patience and make sure that you show up early for your flights. But I think the staffing challenges are largely behind us. So I expect to see much smoother skies across the industry. You mentioned the staffing challenges. Have you been able to not only meet the jobs that you wanted to fill, but have you also been more judicious in terms of your scheduling relative to maybe where you were six months ago? So we've been able to uh, to manage our staffing. We've kind of stayed ahead of this and, and largely been away from that fray that impacted the most of the industry. In fact, we had one of the best summers that we've ever had from a completion factor. But I think even broadly, the broader industry is, is able to keep up now, uh, given kind of the slowdown in, in hiring in other sectors. Barry, just last week, you guys were fined uh, by the Department of Transportation more than $2 million and told to pay back more than $220 million in refunds uh, that you were slow to repay during the pandemic. Looking back, would you have done it differently in terms of how you handled refunds during the pandemic? Yeah, look, I, I think there was an error made, and, and it's unfortunate, and we regret that it happened, but uh, we've made those refunds a long time ago, and that, that's largely in the past now. You're expanding your fleet, uh, and as you're expanding your fleet, you are putting your sights on greater expansion. Where, where do you see the greatest growth right now for Frontier? Is it primarily down in the southeastern United States, the western U.S.? Where do you see, when you look at where Frontier, where you think it should be a year or two from now, where's the expansion? So we're seeing a huge amount of domestic uh, recovery, obviously. I mean, there's been a step function change in demand, especially leisure demand, just from the work from home phenomena. So for example, you know, we have um, literally almost a third of our customers that are traveling five times or more per year, and that's up double from what it was uh, back in, in 2019. So we're seeing kind of an explosion of leisure demand everywhere in the US, uh, but we're also looking at the near international and we continue to focus on, on, on growing there. So you'll continue to see us grow. Uh, we just announced a base in, in Dallas-Fort Worth, and we're, we're just uh, opening our base in Phoenix. Uh, so, yes, we're growing in the southwest United States, but we'll be continuing to grow in the international as well. Barry, you mentioned the number of times your passengers are flying, what, five or more? Uh, and just this weekend, you offered the Go Wild all-you-can-fly passes uh, where people pay, whether it was $5.99 over the weekend or now it's $7.99, and they can fly as much as they want with some restrictions uh, in the course of a year. A lot of people look at that and they say, sounds good on paper, but in reality, there aren't many seats on a lot of flights. Will I be able to get my full use out of it? What kind of demand did you see for the Go Wild Passes? Well, first of all, we have over 5 million seats in the last year that have gone empty, and we expect that we would have a similar number over the next year. And so we're just giving people access to this, and so they can book and confirm a day out if the seats are still available. And if you look at the Q3 as an example, we had over 30 seats uh, available on every fl flight on average uh, in, in the last day before departure. So there's a lot of availability, and we've seen huge uh, demand for that. And so I think it's kind of a win-win win for them uh, as well as us. We'll be able to fill these empty seats. and. It'll allow them to travel kind of anytime they want. And this week, Barry, real quick, you're expecting big crowds? Yes, we, we expect to be full over the holidays, and, and I expect uh, uh, that to continue through the holiday season over Christmas as well. So if you haven't booked a ticket, you probably better do it for Christmas. Barry Biffle, CEO of Frontier Airlines, joining us today. Uh, on a day, thank you, Barry, for joining us. On a day, Brian, when it's quiet here at O'Hare, which is exactly what you want it to be during Thanksgiving week. Good weather nationwide. 
Hopefully, this is a smooth week for travel. Brian, back to you. I'll tell you, it's, a, it's amazing to see it behind you like that, Phil, because the last time I was at O'Hare, honestly, you couldn't even walk. It was that crowded. I expect it's going to ramp up considerably from this bucolic and calm visage behind you. It will. It will. You can count on it by Wednesday. Send us a bucket of that popcorn. That's famous. Phil LeBeau, thank you very much. Appreciate it. All right, coming up, has any hope for a dovish Fed pivot gone the way of the dodo? David Zerbo says don't hold your breath for one, and he'll join us to make the case next. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. I'm Tyler Matheson. Here's your CNBC News update at this hour. Murder and hate crime charges have been filed against a suspect in the Colorado Springs gay nightclub shooting over the weekend. A judge sealed the arrest warrant after prosecutors argued its release could jeopardize their investigation. Victims' names, other details not expected to be announced, were expected to be announced, excuse me, at a news conference at 5 p.m. Eastern time tonight. The death toll has risen to at least 162 people now from a powerful earthquake in Indonesia. Hundreds more were injured. At least 13,000 people suffered heavy damage to their homes, according to the governor of the remote area. And in Washington, President Biden offering the annual pardon to two turkeys ahead of Thanksgiving. Chocolate and chip each weigh nearly 50 pounds. Uh, they will live out their lives on the campus of North Carolina State University. Uh, started by President Harry Truman, the turkey pardoning tradition is now 75, Brian, years old. As a Hokie, I, I always have trouble with this, this whole concept, but uh, yes. You, yes. for good reason, you understand, yes, Tyler. Yes, I do, I do indeed. Although it is delicious. Gobblers. T Tyler Matheson still says fighting gobblers on the stadium. Tyler, thank you. All right, still ahead. Call this an epic OPEC snafu. A big story about OPEC sending oil lower this morning, but then the Saudis said it was all wrong. Try to clear up some of the crude confusion. All right, welcome back. And check out the dramatic move in oil today. That is just today. If you're on the radio, just picture like a big U. Went down, then it went back up. A Wall Street Journalist story this morning said that OPEC Plus was considering raising oil output. Now, that story raised a lot of eyebrows because it would basically be a complete reversal from just a month ago. And it sent oil prices tanking, one point down more than 6% today. But about an hour ago, the Saudis came out and categorically denied any increase of discussion is on the table, even going so far as to say that a further cut might still be discussed, and now oil prices have basically reversed all their losses and even went briefly positive at one point. Joining us now to make sense of it all is Amina Bakar. She is chief OPEC correspondent at Energy Intelligence, has probably forgotten more about OPEC than I know, and I appreciate you joining us by phone. I know it's late where you are in Dubai, Amina. Uh, this was a weird day because the reporters on the Wall Street Journal, we know them. They're our friends. They're, they're great reporters. What do you think happened here? 
Hi, Brian. Uh, I don't really want to speculate into a story that I didn't write myself, but um, basically, uh, as we all know, uh, ahead of OPEC meetings, informal discussions usually take place two to three days ahead of uh, the conference. So it's a little bit strange to hear uh, of any talks taking ahead, uh, uh, like beyond that. And um, I mean, as you mentioned, Brian, Saudi Arabia came out. We have the energy minister, Prince Abdulaziz bin Salman, categorically denying that Saudi Arabia is is discussing uh, an increase. And the market listens to him. Uh, this is an individual who's upholded uh, his uh, his reliability in the market. And as we can see from the current market environment, um, prices are going down because of demand concerns. And this is justification for OPEC Plus making those cuts, the 2 million barrel per day cuts uh, that were uh, criticized uh, initially. And now we see the reason why. Yeah, you do wonder, though, because OPEC and many of its members, of course, the Saudi Arabia kind of, you know, they're the biggest player, but there are many other important players as well. I mean, it, it is possible that somebody in OPEC wants to raise production and floated the story as well. Would there be in, I'm not going to ask you to speculate on the report, but would there be a country inside of OPEC that may wish for a production increase at this time? Sure, but this is something that needs to be discussed at the meeting. And as you know, uh, Brian, very well, OPEC Plus needs to reach a unanimous agreement. Um, so these ideas would be brought forward during the meeting. And again, I would say like it's, it's really early to be having any kind of informal, uh, significant talks ahead. Uh, we just really have to wait and, uh, and see. Um, and just going back again to, uh, to, to, to Prince Abdulaziz's words, I mean, this is an individual who really thinks about things before saying them. When he mentioned that there's a possibility of even a hinting that there's a further, uh, there might be uh, a need for a further cut, depending on market conditions, of course, uh, th- these comments are very, very well thought out. Uh, we all know the prince thinks, 2,500 times before saying anything. Um, so we, we need to pay attention to, to the comments and the, the statement that was issued today. Yeah, and that's the key part of the, the official statement. By the way, a rare move for the Saudis to actually put in their sort of national sort of press distribution something about this, but I felt like they must have, for them, that's how big they view this. The fact that they were saying that they could still reduce quotas. I mean, they're kind of directionally leading us in that way, because what what struck, I think, you and me and everybody else about the story was the price of oil has already been coming coming down. The the Saudis and OPEC were criticized wildly for cutting their output quotas. But one could imagine if they hadn't, the price of oil today could be around 60 bucks or something in the U.S., which the drivers, (laughs) our drivers would love that. But I'm just not sure that OPEC would love that. And, and put things into context, Brian, look at the environment we're facing today. China is still uh, in, in lockdowns, and it's still uncertain when they're going to be easing the lockdowns. You have uh, the, uh, the EU sanctions coming up, and nobody really knows or understands how that would impact uh, Russian production or Russian exports. Sure, there are estimates out there, but nobody really knows the, the impact of the sanctions yet. And you also have the U.S. saying that 
more or additional FDR releases are on the table. Um, and there might be a further announcement to add to the $180 million. So a lot of uncertainty out there. And we know that OPEC, and especially Prince Abdulaziz in Saudi Arabia, they're very cautious in their approach. So um, I don't expect them to, uh, to start easing uh, the cuts at a time where you have a lot of question marks on the demand and the supply side. Yeah, and let's be clear, uh, the OPEC meeting is actually Sunday, December 4th. You'll probably be there. I'll be there. December 5th, that Monday, is the day the EU price cap and sanctions go into effect. The Russians were also on the tape today saying that they will sell no oil to any country that imposes a price cap. So, And if that doesn't work, they may cut production The point is, today was a wild day, and there is a lot that could happen in just the next two or three weeks. Is there not? Yeah, of course, there's a lot that could happen. We just need to wait and see. um, And again, monitor very uh, closely ahead, a few days ahead of of the OPEC meeting to understand if there are any informal discussions taking place. Um, And... uh, yeah, it's just too early to say. Yeah. I, would, I would tell you, quite frankly, there is no specific proposal out there that's, uh, that's being discussed. And if you say it, I believe it. Amina Bakker, thank, th- <laughs> thank you. Brian. I, I'll see you in Vienna. Amina, thank you very much. Appreciate that. Really wild day for oil. A lot of jawboning all over the place. All right, on deck. Let's switch gears. Just how easy could it be to regulate crypto and maybe better protect your money or protect it at all? Well, your next guest says it may not be as hard as you might think. They'll tell you why. Stick around. All right, welcome back. The collapse of embattled crypto exchange FTX renewing calls for regulation of the industry. But does the solution already exist? Your next guest says the SEC is a nearly 50-year-old rule. It could be a part of the answer. Let's bring in Ron Krzyzewski for an exclusive interview. He's the CEO of Stiefel Financial, I remember I was doing a panel on crypto regulation in 2019. Uh, so what, three years ago, Ron? And, you know, with an SEC chair. And it was kind of like it was this mystery world and it would never get figured out. And You think there's a rule that already exists that could be almost plug and play into crypto. What is it? Well, it's the customer protection rule, Brian. I mean, it's been in place since 1970. And what it simply says, and look, first of all, I want to say that there's a lot of questions about how to regulate and and many facets that you can debate. But the one thing you should not debate is whether or not customers should be assured that their funds are not commingled and that their assets are segregated. That's called the customer protection rule. It's uh, been in place since the 1970s. And to me, it's very simple. Congress, if the SEC doesn't think they have the authority, Congress, like now, should put, say the SEC, yes, you do have authority. And if you want to limit it, then just simply limit it that they enforce the customer protection rule. That's table stakes. And frankly, I can't imagine anyone disagreeing with that. There's got to be some reason why it hasn't been done. I mean, it's ob- nothing is as simple as how you just made it, respectfully. But, but I get your point about custodian and, and holding the assets and whatever. Why has, if it's that easy, Ron, why hasn't somebody thought of it or done it? Well, first of all, it's because I think the SEC uh, doesn't feel that they have jurisdiction 
uh, over over the crypto firms, and and they need to be told that they do. Uh, Congress can do that, uh, and very quickly, in my opinion, it shouldn't take that long. But once you have that, I believe that the SEC would say that, and they the rules in place. It's called 15C 3-1 and 3-3, and you can pull them up and read them. They they read very fast, and they simply say that you cannot commingle customer funds. You cannot do what FTX did. And in fact, I would think most crypto participants would come on your show. You should ask them, Brian, do you support whether the crypto industry should be subject to the customer protection rule? Okay. If they say they don't know, then they don't know what they're doing. If they say no, then you should get out of that company. And if they say yes, which I'm certain that all of them would, then Congress needs to give the SEC authority and the SEC needs to enforce those rules. And a lot of the things that my clients are concerned about, people here in the Midwest that have lost maybe only $100 or $200 in crypto, but that's a lot of money to a lot of people, they would at least know that the customer protection rule and their deposits are, or assets are safe in U.S. regulation. Well, you know, it's funny because we can't, we apparently can't even decide as a nation what the heck crypto is. Is it, I don't like to call it a cryptocurrency, but that's what it says on you know our website, so I'll say it, but it's, it's, it's a commodity-ish in my view. It's certainly not a currency. So you've got the Department of Agriculture involved because it's a commodity. In fact, some of them millions that FTX was spending lobbying were going to people on the Department of Agriculture committee, were they not? Because is it a commodity? What do you think it is? I don't care what it is. I don't care if it's a tulip. I don't care if it's crypto. I don't care if it's a stock. What I do care about and what I think is uh, what makes the U.S. markets as strong as they are is that no matter what it is, if you take customer funds... You cannot use those customer funds in your business. That rule has been on the books for 50 years. Why it does not apply to crypto is something that we need to fix. It needs to be a discussion. And you guys, I think, should be asking market participants why they don't agree with it. Because if the industry would say, we agree that we should protect our clients' funds, again, I can't imagine yeah. saying they wouldn't, then Congress is, it's upon Congress to give the SEC the authority. And That's that needs it. to be done yesterday, not next year. Because you got the SEC sort of involved, the CFTC sort of involved, the Department of Agriculture, because it's considered a commodity, which is a rule dating back to the 1800s on what's supposed to be this modern thing is just baffling. It's like the Railroad Commission overseeing space travel. Ron, we appreciate your view. Have a great Thanksgiving. <laughs> hey, Brian, Brian, yeah. Brian, one thing, just one thing. There's a fire going on in confidence in crypto, yeah. okay? We shouldn't be deciding which fire department needs to go, okay? Well Let's said. just get on this, get the customer protection rule in place. That's All it. Right? Well, appreciate well, it. Well said. Ron, have a great Thanksgiving. Really, stuff, just common sense. Thank you. All right, up next, a man that I'm going to call the shaman of central banks, David Zerbos, on why Jay Powell may have to play Ebenezer Scrooge this Christmas. Our market's bracing for another week of Fed speeches, but your next guest is only focused on one voice, Fed Chair Jay Powell. He says Powell will push back hard against any pressure for a pivot because his top priority is fighting inflation. Joining us now is David Zerbos. Chief Market Strategist at Jeffries. Did you like that? The shaman of central banks? I, I don't know. You could Pretty cool, Brian. I don't think I've ever been called the shaman. If, if so, Handler you know. calls you that in the hallways, we'll know that it sticks. 
are, are we not listening to all the 16 speeches last week and just one? What are we doing? I mean, I think you can listen to a few of them, but you really, I mean, at the end of the day, the voice uh, of the committee is, is Jay, and it's always been the chair, and there's been a few around our various chairs of the past that have been important, but I think, you know, the, the voices of a few presidents here and there that are on fringes are really not the relevant story. And, and Brian, I, I don't know if you saw this, but um, there is a speech coming up November 30th, so just after Thanksgiving, it was announced that Jay's going to speak at the Brookings Institute, I think, for an hour or two uh, around lunchtime. And that wasn't on the agenda. That's right before the blackout period. So clearly, you know, he has something to say. So we'll learn a lot more just after Thanksgiving. That, that is November. You said November 30th? I believe so. Yeah. I, I saw the team late last week. It's, uh, it's that yeah. week. That, but it was just announced. It wasn't a it wasn't a pre uh, a pre structured like Jackson Hole speech or. Huh. Well, the voice of God, a.k.a. my executive producer, Maria Bowden, got in my ear and and said, yes, that is correct. November 30th at 1.30. So thank you to them. So what does that tell you then, David, if if Powell is just, you know, oh, yeah, are you free that day? Sure. Why not? That's not how it works. (laughs) Um, You know, look, Brian, I, I think Jay's message has been pretty steadfast. I don't think he's deviated. Even in the beginning of the year, he was he was trying to tell you, look, I'm going to go after this. Inflation got worse. He went after it harder. I think his credibility sits at a very, very high level, which is not what a lot of your guests say. A lot of people want to talk about Fed credibility being lost, but the dollar's strong, the curve's inverted. Gold can't get out of its own way over the last couple of years. The break-even inflations and the long-dated inflation uh, measures, like five-year, five-year, those are all you know range-bound. So you know, this is mission accomplished on anchoring inflation expectations. And I think it's not he's going to declare victory. He's going to say, I need to keep making sure, or what, what does he say? He says, keeping at it, which is the title of Paul Volcker's memoirs. I think he's going to keep at it. So I can't expect that Jay's yeah. going to really be like a softie going into Christmas. That said, we're going to slow down, Brian. We're not going 75s every meeting forever. And we're going to we're going to have a period where we get to watch the lags and watch the cumulative level of tightening kind of come in and do what it's supposed to do, slow things down. And that's it. And it's really fascinating that Powell added that speech on November 30th and told us at 1.30, which this shows from 1 to 2. So my thinking is we might have some headlines on this program. David Zervo, appreciate it. Yeah. I love it. David, great stuff. David always brings it in a different way. Very smart. There you go. November 30th, folks. Circle it on your calendar. All right, China announced limited easing of its strict COVID zero policies just two weeks ago, but now cases are popping again. Eunice Yoon will tell you about it coming up. All right, welcome back. Well, the world had begun to see a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel when it came to China's zero COVID policy. But new deaths over the weekend could put an end to Beijing's easing of restrictions. Eunice Yoon joining us now with the very latest. And Eunice, I heard you on CNBC earlier. It sounds like Cases and hospitalizations are popping, but they're popping in Beijing in the most populated neighborhood. Yeah, that's right, Brian. Um, the um, capital has now reported three deaths in, uh, you know, this is the for the first time in, in six months. And um, there are now thousands of cases here um, just in the past couple of days. And that is really raising concerns that we could see a more chaotic enforcement of China's uh, very conflicting policies. So um, I'm currently in the largest district 
of Beijing. It's in an effective lockdown, and it has been for the past few days. Uh, the situation is, is even worse in uh, Guangzhou, which has seen um, nearly 9,000 mm. uh, daily infections and, in fact, put their biggest and most populous district um, in a five-day lockdown. And then the rest of the city is effectively, they said, in what the authorities have described as silent mode. So that's also um, a kind of a semi-partial uh, shutdown. Now, this all comes about a week after the leadership here had said that it was going to start to ease the very stringent zero-COVID policy. Um, this, um, in for investors, probably should know that when the Chinese are saying that they're reopening, it isn't a reopening, at least that's not what we're seeing so far in the way that the rest of the world would understand it, but it's more of a reopening yeah. with Chinese characteristics. So, so that means that what we're seeing is um, some um, of the more egregious measures kind of mitigated, but here on the ground, there isn't really any discernible change from what we're seeing. And if anything, it feels stricter and kind of worse uh, well, and more confused because we, local officials are now trying to seem as though they're adhering to the reopening rules, but but really are, are still sticking to that zero COVID goal. Are people who can see you on the screen now see that it's nighttime there, it's late, you're in a mask, you're outside by yourself. People on the radio, I want to explain the situation. And I want to explain why mm -hmm. you are wearing a mask outside at night by yourself, because you, you will get harassed, right? Pe there are people who will bother you, mm -hmm. even if you're 100 yards from the nearest person, if you're not doing it in a mask. That's why. And I, and I think that goes to the story about what is it like living and working in these constantly changing environments? It's got to be just mind-blowingly frustrating. Well, it it, it is frustrating, and actually it feels very much like um, back in May when Beijing was starting to feel as though it was going to go into a total lockdown. So people then were starting to, to stockpile and were very, very nervous. And the situation is, is similar, except that the big difference is that all of the messaging that we're getting is, is more unofficial. Again, because Beijing doesn't want to look as though they are making these big announcements about a reopening um, or, or um, a massive clampdown, so what we're hearing is like companies are saying, oh, they're, they're getting unofficial yeah. alerts that they have to go into lockdown or then buildings are going into quarantine. And so that just makes it more, much, much more, much more. Um, uncertain and confusing. Eunice, our thoughts are with you and everybody else over there, by the way. Eunice, Yoon, thank you very much. All right, folks, that's it for us on The Exchange. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day. Same time, same place. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.